Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Hi, my name is Elisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician and I'm the co-chair of the Joma Preventative Health Committee. And I'm here today with Dr. Naor Barzev, PhD, MPH, MBBS, and Biostat. He's the deputy director of the International Vaccine Access Center and associate professor of international health and vaccinology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He is a pediatric infectious disease physician and a statistical epidemiologist. His research is on how to maximize vaccine benefits for low resource, high mortality areas of the world. He recently co-authored a piece in The Lancet on COVID-19 vaccine trials entitled Encouraging Results from Phase 1 and 2 COVID-19 Vaccine Trials. That was July 20th, 2020. So just first of all, thank you so much, so, so much for joining us today. Hi, Lisa. Thank you. Um, we took a poll of our listeners. We asked for questions. We got a few, and I'm going to share a couple. But we um, ended up asking people a poll. It was easier for people to answer those few questions rather than generate their own. And some of the questions were, you know, split. Um, 70% thought it was necessary to wear masks, you know, what we called across the board, um, and 30% felt it was unnecessary. And um, about half people felt they were, had a low risk high aversion and about half felt they had a high risk aversion. So people are very different with their personalities and how they're approaching this, this uncertain risk. Um, but across the, almost across the board, almost 100% of people felt that partisan issues did affect COVID-19 management in the United States, which is, is an unbelievable problem. We all agree that it's a problem. Um, and also almost 100% thought that there was a middle ground for keeping people safe while reopening society. So those are really interesting findings, I thought. And I think that it's, it's very clear that we're having things that are not medical get in the way of the medicine here. So our first question from listeners is, how do we make sense of all the studies and data that keep changing when everything is so politicized? How do we know who to trust? Yeah, well, um, I think it's important that um, personally trust has to be a person who shows empathy and understanding. Mm -hmm. uh, people are going through. I think it's you know, very clear that this has had very major impact on people's lives. Obviously, mm -hmm. people have lost loved ones. Um, people have lost their jobs. People have lost income. People's lives have been thrown in turmoil. And um, I think it's important to also acknowledge that it's not just that people have um, lost their lives because of COVID illness. Um, I think people, uh, well, not I think it's clear that people, mm -hmm. there's an increased mortality that's associated with the lockdowns as well. Mm -hmm. And um, particularly, maybe less so in the US, but also in the US, but particularly in settings with high mortality and difficult access to care, the COVID, <clears throat> excuse me, the COVID-19 lockdowns that have been, uh, you know, placed on populations in, in vulnerable settings have meant that um, children are more uh, liable to malnutrition, children uh, are more, and not just children, adults uh, have less access to care that's needed. I know from colleagues in other parts of the world of women who are giving birth to get turned away from accessing healthcare because there's a lockdown and ridiculous things like that. Oh, wow. And so, you know, the pendulum can swing too far. And, mm -hmm. 
and the balance, getting that balance right of maintaining um, transmission reduction and mitigating the spread of one infection shouldn't come at the expense of, you know, albeit a serious infection, shouldn't come at the expense of the total lockdown of society, both in terms of health service delivery and in terms of other, other needs. I think it needs to be acknowledged that even in the United States, there are nutritional implications to many children as a result of school closures. And of course, also arising domestic violence and gender-based mm -hmm. and, and other abuse issues. So, you know, these are real, really challenging things to get right. And I think that the reason for empathy isn't just on a personal level. I don't mm -hmm. think that, you know, of course, a personal, you know, you want the person, you trust a person who understands what you're going through. But I think empathy at a, at a broad level, if we understand what society is going through, then we can really understand the implications of our actions. If we take an idealistic one-sided view, mm -hmm much more likely to get things wrong. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I think you want to go to people who have a deep understanding of the subject matter and its broad implications um, and, and have a modicum of, uh, you know, un of uncertainty about mm -hmm. what I tell you. Um, you know, I think uncertainty and humility are really important and, um, and anybody who claims to know everything that there is to know um, is wrong. Uh, and everybody who's definitive about what they know is wrong. I think everybody, the more a person expresses uncertainty, the more they should be believed. And that's not something that tends to be promulgated in social media or other settings. I think people tend to say state definitive statements. Right, yeah. I think uncertainty makes us so uncomfortable. But I always say the one thing certain about COVID is uncertainty. <laughs> yeah, no, look, I think that, you know, what we're seeing is science uh, unfolding in real time. This is mm -hmm. a condition. Um, yes, there are other coronaviruses that have been with us for, for you know, longer, but, but this particular virus is new. And uh, as a new virus, as was the case with other previous newly emerging viruses, it's an entirely new condition and there's a lot to be learned. The response of science of the scientific community to this has been phenomenal. And the idea that we're you know, just about six months or just at six months since the pandemic was declared and there are already multiple vaccine candidate mm -hmm. treatments and multiple clinical trials and and you know, is, is ne has never happened before. So what we know is phenomenal, but what we don't know is infinitely greater. And so we need to we need to remember that. So uh, you know, the, the, a key issue in science is uncertainty. One of the difficulties I think of the scientific community is perhaps, you know, as society left sort of religious uh, frameworks of thinking, you know, with the Enlightenment and so on in the last 200, 250 years people still need a sense of certainty and so they, it's moved towards the scientific community and now mm. this community kind of hold the reins of, of access to truth and they don't have it nobody has access to the truth so i think if the scientific community um you know uses uncertainty in its evaluation statistically of its results it needs to express that uncertainty to the population so that people know um you know the trust depends on being very careful about what you say mm -hmm. overconfident about what you claim yeah Right, and that's a perfect segue to masks because I think one thing you alluded to is how important it is to communicate to the public clearly what's going on. Um, so I just wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts on mandatory masking, also for children, because I think that is something that we're going to be starting school, and I think that's something that people are, are getting pretty um, concerned and, and polarized about. Yes, I mean, you're right about this communication being so critical, and I think mm -hmm. just say that communication is a two-way thing. That's the meaning of communication mm -hmm. uh, in the etymology of the word. It's not just mm -hmm. a nation of a truth or, a, you know, so I think we need to listen as much as we speak um, and perhaps listen even more than we speak. But mm -hmm. it needs to be acknowledged that the advice around mask, masks changed and, and that led to a lot of confusion. 
and there was uncertainty about, um, you know, initially there was a concern that there may not be enough masks and masks were supposed to be um, relegated just to healthcare workers who would have been at greater risk and other settings like that. And there was some doubt initially about whether masks uh, might have an impact on uh, transmission reduction broadly. And then that quickly changed. Um, and I, I think it's important to maybe explain why that happened or explain at least the rationale behind some of that thinking. And it's a little bit of an abstract idea, so I hope you know the listeners uh, uh, will, will sort of concentrate and, and follow. But there's a difference between let, let's put it like this. You know, I, I know that in my lifetime I have a limited lifetime and that I'll die. My risk of dying is 100% certain. It's certain that I'll die. The question isn't whether I'm going to die. The question is whether I'm going to die right now. And I hope that I can at least finish this interview. Uh, you know, and I'm. I may have the ring. Yeah, so, you know, there's a difference. We, in, in, in statistics, we call this a difference between a risk and a hazard, but that's getting a bit technical. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the same kind of thinking, you know, whether what's the overall risk versus what's the immediate risk right now, the same kind of idea um, can also be thought about in masks. You know, masks are not perfect and masks right. will not reduce the, will, will not eradicate a risk of transmission in any given interaction between two people. But masks reduce the risk. Okay, now, if I'm operating on a person's open brain or in an open knee joint or whatever, a simple mask by itself might not be enough. You know, some, in, under special circumstances, we sometimes have to take even more precautions than that because that particular interaction is so critical that, we, that it remain sterile. But in normal interactions in the street, in the shops and whatever, we can't live in a sterile world. So why wear masks at all? Well, masks reduce two things. They reduce my ability to transmit um, you know, on on mass uh, virus to people around me, and also, uh, although the second of these probably is only circumstantial evidence, it's not absolutely demonstrated, but it's it's plausible and likely that wearing a mask uh, provides at least some degree of protection to myself, also from, if not from infection, at least from the dose of infection. By which I mean that if you get if you just have a little bit of virus entering your, your body, um, you know, you may, um, you may have mild disease or you may have even no disease and have asymptomatic infection. Whereas if you have a very large infecting dose, what we call an inoculum, somebody coughs right in somebody's face, for example, it's likely that that recipient of that cough will be, uh, will have a more severe disease. Uh, and that was one of the thoughts that um, when, when we saw early on, at least with this pandemic, when, young and otherwise healthy uh, health workers were, were dying or have, becoming mm -hmm. very, probably an inoculum issue. So it is, there is some evidence to suggest that broad ma wide mask wearing of masks might increase the probability that infections are asymptomatic. And that's positive, right? Mm -hmm. Even if they don't reduce infection or even if they reduce infection only a little bit, that in itself is good because at population level, you know, overall, if we can reduce infections by 15%, by 30%, by 40%, even if this particular interaction might, may or may not be reduced, overall the reduction happens, so overall transmission goes down, so overall the population is protected. But even more, if, um, if it means that the infections that do occur are more mild and less symptomatic, then that's very welcome. So I think you know, masks are not perfect, but masks do a lot and they'll only do a lot if everybody complies with them, right? So that's the, I think that, that change in that thinking and the understanding of all of that, that, you know, yes, they're not perfect, but they don't have to be perfect. That partly was the reason for the change in the advice that we have to move from an individual risk perspective to a public health perspective.
right? And I think that's hard for people to understand. Some people say, well, what do you care whether I wear a mask? Because you're wearing a mask. If your mask doesn't work to protect you, then see, masks don't work. So I, I hope people understand that you've just explained that there, yeah. it goes both ways and it's not perfect. And I think some people also are very black and white. They think either it's 100% it works or 100% it doesn't work. And again, we're living in a gray zone here. That's right, and it's a very wide gray zone. Mm -hmm. And you know, it is, it's, it, they certainly, if, you, if the expectation is that they work perfectly, well, they don't. Uh, mm -hmm. um, if they don't, if the expectation is that they don't work at all, well, they do. Um, but the degree is very broad in the middle and it depends on so many other factors. Um, but if everybody was to do it, then every, then the, the total burden would go down. And it right, and right. And do it properly because everybody who's been in a store knows that people wear it off their nose, sometimes on their chin. And people who have a valve, they've made masks with valve, which means it only protects you, not others. And yeah, protecting right. others is a big part. But the thing that keeps striking me is what's the downside? Yeah, so I, you know, I think maybe just to very clearly state um, that there isn't any truth to the idea that masks are dangerous mm -hmm. and not dangerous. Obviously, if you never change your mask, you, you know, it's, you just think of your mask like you change your socks or you change your underwear. If you don't change your underwear for you know two weeks at a time, it's also not a good idea. The same thing would be true for a mask. If you if you do cough and sneeze into a mask, and if the mask does get moist, and if you, then yeah, sure, then maybe germs could grow on it or whatever. In theory, or maybe even in practice, but that's not how they're supposed to be used. You know, they're used either as, as single use or you wear them and you wash them and you, you know, with soap and water and, and hot water and that's fine. So, you know, they're not, they're not, and they're certainly, they certainly don't cause, um, you know, low oxygen levels or any of those things. Those things are false. Right, or inhaling your carbon dioxide. Yeah, that's, that's nonsense. Yeah. I mean, it can cause some rash on your face. You know, it's possible that people wear, who have headaches, it might possibly, you know, Give you more I mean, headache, uh, maybe. There may be some individuals uh, for for whom you know whether they have either you know physical or, or psychological reasons why wearing a mask is difficult for them. Um, but you know exceptions like that only prove the rule, and um, and we have to respect all people, and we have to respect people who can't wear masks also. But it just increases the importance of most people wearing them, uh, and that that will make a big difference. Now the 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 question of children, I think you mentioned passing. Mm -hmm. Look, I think it's really important to think about what sort of world our children are, are being, uh, you know, raised into and socialised into. Children are resilient and children understand that the world is a different place from what they were used to six months ago. Um, children also can get used to a lot of things and, and it depends on how you socialise it. If, if in a household wearing a mask is, a, is, a, is seen as a bad thing, then children might want to do it. But if, if it becomes a normal thing or if it's sort of done as a fun thing, then children like to do it. They want to be like the grown-ups. They also want to do it or whatever. And depending obviously on the age and age-appropriate messaging and, and education. Uh, I think a bigger issue really is the, on children, the impact on children is this distancing and learning from home and the lack of social socialization. Mm -hmm. Already mentioned the huge impact that lockdowns are having on, on child health. Um, and these are real things and they're, they're, they need to be, you know, we need to teach our children that, yes, we do want children to, to have love and intimacy and play and cuddles and all that stuff that remains important and, and a cuddle, Baba or Safta or whoever, that, those things are very important to get right, um, obviously without taking undue risk. And, um, and that's really up to parents to do that best. It's not for some expert to come on a, on a show and tell people how to raise their kids. You know, most people will get that balance right naturally because they love their children and they know how to balance, uh, as we do all, every day with our children, to balance the growth and their needs. Yeah. 
Absolutely, so beautifully put. And I do see as a pediatrician, I can tell the difference between families which are promoting it in a healthy way to their children and those that themselves have issues, it clearly transmits to the children. I mean, we are our role models for our children and they will follow our lead. And like you said, they're, they're so resilient, it's so true. Um, but I just wanna say two things. Number one is that the lockdowns can be limited by both the mask wearing and the second point that I want to make is the distancing because as you said masks aren't perfect and we shouldn't lean on them so much that we become too dependent on a, a faulty you know limited um, method and that the physical distancing we should never forget how important that is because people may go for example to a simcha and okay I'm wearing a mask I can dance I can you know get close to people um, and that's not necessarily true. Yeah, so none of the measures we have are perfect and right. therefore we have to apply them all. Um, you know, if you line up, a, you know, in, in any eras, you know, whether it's in the airline industry, when they examine airline crashes, or in medical errors, you know, there's always a series of things that line up and, and each one, there's a gap in the, in the net of each one. And then, you know, if you think about it like a Swiss cheese with holes in every slice and right. come up the mouse can run through the, the holes in the cheese, right? What we need to do is to break that, to say, okay, well, if the mask isn't perfect, well, at least I'm also physically distanced. And if somebody stepped in, well, at least I'm wearing a mask. And if I do need to do something that's, you know, a more prolonged or maybe a face shield is in order, depending on the circumstances and so on. And so all, you know, and I wash my hands and I'm careful. So all of those things are, um, you know, they all add up to a reduction in transmission. Absolutely. So I want to move on to another topic um, that we had a question from. Actually, it was a physician who asked me, what should I give someone who gets COVID-19 as an outpatient? Should I give zinc, hydroxychloroquine, vitamin C, vitamin D? Do we have any evidence that hydroxychloroquine can be helpful, especially early on? And if we don't, if it isn't harmful, why not use it just in case it might work? So clinical guidance um, on management of mild illness is available, but for patients, healthcare workers, um, lots of places, but you know, obviously on the CDC website and, and other reputable sources, but the CDC website is good. Um, I think it's important to understand that currently there are no proven treatments for coronavirus. Um, and most people will have, mild, will have mild symptoms, most people will recover fully. There are now emerging reports of residual prolonged symptoms in some people, um, but still the vast majority will make a full recovery. There are lots and lots of agents, lots of therapeutics that are undergoing clinical trials including herbal remedies and including traditional Chinese remedies. And, and um, you know, I think the proof is in the pudding. You need to do clinical trials to see whether or not compared to controls, uh, those remedies work. I have no particular bias about official pharmaceuticals, quote unquote, versus, mm -hmm. versus Chinese. I think, you know, many, many great pharmaceuticals came from what was traditional Chinese remedies. Uh, Artemisinins for malaria, the most important example probably of all. So, you know, things might work, but if you're going to make a claim that they work, then you need the evidence and that evidence really needs to be based on well-conducted trials. Now, hydroxychloroquine was suggested early on as a potential therapeutic, as were other agents. Um, and the story with it is complicated, as you know. You know, initially there was a non-randomized uh, study that was published by a very good researcher, Didier Raoul, who's a good infectious disease researcher in Europe. He published a non-randomized study that showed uh, you know, potential benefit and um, that got people very excited because we really needed a um, mm -hmm. treatment. That excitement um, you know, led to a run on hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine is a licensed medication for, for SLE, for lupus. Mm -hmm. It's a licensed antimalarial, although it's not widely used as an antimalarial anymore. But you know, 
people were people who needed it for their treatment of their chronic conditions had difficulty getting it because there was a run on it everybody wanted it obviously it was widely promoted um then you know there, there were lots of um case reports and case series including by medical people who made claims of 100 percent efficacy and you know that it works every time um and you know again as i said in the beginning anybody who makes absolutist claims needs to be seen with a little bit of doubt Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously there was the political, uh, you know, uh, wind that blew under the sail mm -hmm. as well. But um, then there was a trial that was published in The Lancet, um, and then it was withdrawn because the data upon which it was based couldn't be verified. And because at the moment the speed and the pressure to find a new result, uh, you know, find a meaningful result was so great that um, that happened. And, you know, I think it's a salutary lesson. Overall, given the volume of studies, I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of papers published on COVID every week. Yeah. And it's, it's a massive new literature. So if one of them comes through um, and is found to have faulty data and is then retracted, I think that's not a, an evidence or that's not a sign that the whole system is failing. I think it's a sign that the system is working, that it can pick out uh, important studies that show no effect and ask to have them validated. And when they can't be validated, it withdraws them and make it, it makes that withdrawal public. I think that's really important. It shows that the system overall is working but it Wait, i'm sorry you're, you're referring to the the surgisphere study right that yeah, that was retracted right. from the lancet right Correct. that showed but, that know, it didn't work well it showed that the evidence was unreliable mm -hmm. um, and yes and the, the originally the trial as you say showed that so you know that doesn't the fact that it doesn't that we weren't unable to prove that it doesn't work doesn't not mean that it works right right um, subsequently, other studies that have been published have shown that um, used as a prophylactic, uh, it showed no effect. That was mm -hmm. another uh, trial that was published. So, you know, so then the question is, well, if it might work, should I use it? Well, I think it's important to remember that um, hydroxychloroquine is a, is a cardiac, cardiac, cardioactive drug. It has cardiac side effects on rhythm. It can cause rhythm disturbances, and some of them can be serious. And the um, and particularly in people who have underlying cardiac vulnerability, heart problems. And the people in whom you might most want to use it would be the people who might be at risk of severe disease. Mm -hmm. It'd be very well the people who have underlying cardiac conditions. You know, um, so you need to be thinking double and triple uh, on the risk profile of that person before you go prescribing um, a drug that might affect their cardiac um, rhythm. And uh, so there's a risk. Uh, and so I think with the awareness that there is a real risk and with the understanding that there's no proven benefit at this stage, in fact, there's some evidence against benefit from, you know, well-conducted studies, albeit that there was an initial signal that there might be something there in a non-randomized study, I think the balance uh, is against it at the moment. And, uh, you know, there are still trials that are underway, but, um, you know, at this stage, there's no strong evidence for using it. There are good reasons to not use it. And I think definitely do not try this at home alone. You know, no, make sure you sure. speak to your healthcare provider before taking this medication. Make sure you're under medical supervision if your doctor does prescribe it. You know, but I just want to go over this just a little bit deeper. I've heard that the studies do not rule out it helping early on, particularly when it's given with zinc slash azithromycin. Azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine can augment the cardiac um, side effects. Yeah, that's right. So look, the, the evidence is still out. It's not, it's not a, the evidence is not definitive and the evidence is not, the studies have not been completed. And so you can't, the, the statement to say we can't rule out that it works is not a rational way to approach things. We have to hypothesize, the way science works is we hypothesize that it doesn't work and we try to demonstrate that in fact we're wrong and that it does work. 
and we've not had that demonstration yet. And we know that it's unsafe, at least in, you know, in some people. So that's why I'm saying, I think we really need to be reliant on good quality science, mm -hmm. randomized, double blind clinical trials that are controlled, either placebo controlled or some other control, uh, in order that we can make a, a clear recommendation about whether there's a role for it, both in terms of severe disease, both in terms of prevention of severe disease once infection occurs, both in terms of prophylaxis against infection. Um, you know, and uh, as I said, that the papers on that have demonstrated no effect. Um, and to understand the risk profile uh, in those different subgroups in whom it might be considered for use. So we're not there yet. As much as people want a treatment, we're not there yet. Right. Um, and I think we definitely have enough evidence that later on it doesn't work. And I think even the, the strongest hydroxychloroquine proponents are saying, but of course you have to use it early. And I think the problem with that is because the vast majority of people who get COVID do fine, even those with high risk factors, the number of people you'd have to study, right, in a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study would be huge. Correct. Correct. Huge. So I think that that's, that's the biggest problem. And it reminds me of, you know, in the vaccine hesitant world, I feel like the goalposts have been moved to the point where we really can't disprove the hypothesis. Yeah, but that, as I say, you can't say something is true and then saying it's up to the onus is now on, on the scientific community to disprove it. I think right. if you're going to make a claim, then the onus of proof is on you to make that claim, especially when, you, when a person is playing around with something that potentially is toxic. Right. There's risk, but there's no known benefits at this point. That's right. So I think that those are, are good points to make. Um, testing. That's a whole complicated um, topic, but just on the recent statement by the CDC, they just came out within the past week, I believe, that if you're exposed to someone with COVID-19, prior to this, they recommended that you get tested, and now they're saying that you don't need testing, and that maybe someone who's high risk could get tested, but they're not recommending it. Why do they say that? I don't really even understand this. So I don't, I'm not sure, to be honest, uh, Lisa, I'm not sure that that's quite right. I don't know, maybe, maybe you've heard something I haven't heard, I don't know, but the, the CDC website still says that people have had close contact, you know, at least 15 minutes within six feet or with somebody with confirmed COVID should probably have a test. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure. This is a recent change by the CDC. Okay, so that, that, that may be the case. Um, the, I guess the issue is, um, again, there's an issue of availability of resources, mm -hmm. an issue of what does the was it what does a positive test mean and what does a negative test mean, and there's an issue of um, how do we allocate how do, the degree to which testing is required. Um, there's a lot to talk about testing. There's many many um, many aspects to this. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, if you test only the most severely sick, then you're going to get um, a lot more positivity, and you're going to get also severe outcomes in that group, and then you'll. Mm -hmm. So things are, are a lot worse. You need to have testing available at community level wide enough that you have you know, a large majority of people being tested that may or may not or have mild symptoms um, so that you get a real sense of what's going on in the community. So there's a question of how do you deploy testing best at population level to understand um, what the disease is doing at the, at the community at population level. And then there are questions that relate to individual cases. You know, what do I do now? Do I need a test now? Do I not? And what do I do with my positive test? What do I do with my negative test? What do I do with a rapid test? Um, so it can be, it is a bit confusing. Add to that the fact that testing took quite a while to establish. And uh, although more of, of late, the availability has really been scaled up very dramatically across the United States. 
Um, you know, so now it's available. For a long time, it wasn't available. And then there was a big run and a lot of companies putting out tests. And, and, and as you said, now we have lots of rapid tests. Um, I guess the, the, the issue is that I, in, in a case of a, if, you, if a person has had a known confirmed contact, then they, they've had a confirmed contact of your know, substantial contact to somebody who's had COVID, confirmed COVID, then whether or not testing is available, that person should enter really into isolation because they may potentially become infected, uh, have become infected. They may not have symptoms and they may become infectious to others. Um, and if they have a test immediately on that moment, then in other words, if I get exposed right now and I right now have a test, that test is likely to be negative if mm -hmm. it's too early. So if people rush immediately to get a test, um, oh my gosh, this happened to me, blah, 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 I can't believe it, I'm gonna get a test today. It'll be negative and it won't mean anything. So really there's a question, there's a waiting period um, of several days before the test becomes likely to be positive. And it's very difficult to know at what point within that time a person themselves could already become infectious. So really the safest thing to do is that if you've been told you've had a known confirmed contact is that really you should be uh, in isolation. Um, and you should stay in that isolation depending on the circumstances, but in, you know, in most cases, 14 days, um, uh, some, you know, depending on the circumstances, 10 days, but 14 days. If you right, I mean, it, it just shortens your, your, your period of isolation very briefly if you get tested early enough, which wouldn't be before two days because the incubation period is two to 14 with an average of, I think, seven or eight days, um, maybe five to seven days. Um, so say you get tested on day two and you're positive, then you wait 10 days, that's 12 days versus 14. It's, it's really not gonna change much. And I think the reason they said this, by the way, is I think they were thinking on a population basis, we're getting too many people who are leaving isolation early, so better they don't get tested and just wait. Yeah, so, so I guess if they have um, a negative test and that negative test is, is a false negative, mm -hmm. um, then that's a problem and they're safe for staying in just a few days extra in, in isolation. But again, they, they are, everybody should see their practitioner, everybody should be in contact with their practitioner, everybody's personal circumstances have to be weighed up. But overall, the right thing to do if your person's in contact is to go into isolation for that period of time and then, and then see it through uh, and that's it. Now, the, the, as you say, there um, you know, tests can be false negative, and uh, then the consequences of a false negative test are very substantial um, because a person goes about their life back to normal, and in fact, they might be shedding virus. Um, but there's also been confusion around what does a positive mean, and could there be false positives? Um, and by which by which I mean that you know some of these tests, particularly the PCR-based tests, are very sensitive. Mm -hmm and um, they can detect RNA that's present, uh, but it may not be present from viable virus. The virus itself might be um, you know, not infectious, but detectable, um, particularly if it's late in the period of shedding or particularly if antibodies perhaps have already started to develop, or if you're talking about surface swabs and other things like that, um, that initially were much more, um, sort of there was much more of a focus on that. Um, so, there are a lot of uncertainties and there isn't really a standard, a gold standard. If we have a, if we have, um, a test that is too sensitive in the sense that it detects non-infectious virus, then that can be a problem for people who enter isolation for no reason. Um, and if it's false negative, it's even worse because you know, you've got, as I said before, you go walk around infecting others. So really the idea is, I think, perhaps, you know, I haven't heard what you just said about the CDC, but mm -hmm. I think that certainly logical to say that you know, people try to get out of things by having a, a test and mm -hmm. that way, but really 
the key issue is if you've been exposed and then, then you need to be isolated for the period of time and, and that remains important and obviously to continue to maintain your physical distancing and wearing your mask even after that. Right. And it's a misuse of testing. I wish they had just communicated that rather than sure. the way they said it. And you mentioned, you alluded to, first of all, when you say PCR testing, very sensitive, I think you're talking about people who've had it in the past and are still testing positive. You know, when they do testing of say whole schools or camps, they're going to pick up some of those if they do PCRs on somebody who's been recently infected. So I think yeah. that they made a clear statement and it was of course distorted by the media, which recently they also came out with, if you have been exposed and you have had COVID, not antibodies, but COVID in the past three months, and you don't have new symptoms, then you should not be swabbed. Now that was clear and that made so much sense. It got distorted to, oh, your, your immunity lasts for three months, which is not, not what they were saying. They were saying that we know already for three months your PCR can remain positive because you may still have you know, dead virus particles within yep. you. And that doesn't tell you anything clinically and it causes a lot of confusion. So that to me was clear communication and yeah, helpful. So I'm glad you're saying that because I feel like when we, in this discussion, we've explored um, all the nuances and complexities and why people might be confused, but we haven't concluded with sort of clear messages. So I think that is an important clear message to take away, that we need to use testing wisely. Ideally, we need to use testing under the, under the you know, guidance of um, a health practitioner. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, it's great that testing is widely available, but it needs to be used correctly and interpreted correctly. Absolutely. Now, I heard something else. Um, Michael Mina is a, a big proponent of this, of doing um, frequent rapid tests. I don't know if you've been following. Um, I, haven't, I, haven't, I mean, I know Michael. I, don't, I haven't mm -hmm. heard a uh, comment on this. Um, the, the, there are differences, but well, I guess I, I should say the following. Doing tests in, um, in series, so doing... Mm -hmm. Uh, in series does improve uh, the accuracy of testing um, because it makes it as a, a bit like the net example I gave before, mm -hmm. that more likely that if you know one is negative and then the second one is also negative, well, it's more likely to be a true negative. Um, and the same would be true in confirmatory testing for positives, but particularly for negative. So, um, so that, that could be the case. The, the difficulty with the rapid tests is that perhaps they are less sensitive than the PCR um, but again, this is a bit of a subtlety, but if the mm -hmm. PCR is so-called too sensitive, in other words, if, right. if it does, you know, let, let me go back a step. Before we had molecular testing like PCR, which was so sensitive, we had lots of other diagnostic tests available. And those diagnostic tests for a range of conditions tended to be positive when the person was sick and tended to be negative when the person wasn't sick. And that worked reasonably well. But once we found PCR, which magnifies the genetic material of an organism to you know, many, many times over, we started to detect organisms in people who weren't sick either. And we came to realize that for some conditions, they have asymptomatic carriage. Um, and so we understood that the use of PCR-based tests covers a different range of syndromes, really. It covers you know, organisms in the body that don't necessarily cause disease. Now, how do you apply that to COVID-19 where we know that people can be asymptomatic but still infectious? Right? So it's tricky. And how do you deal with it when it's, when it's detecting very, very low levels? And it could be, um, I should also say that when you determine whether or not a molecular test is positive or negative, it's not, also not black and white. There's a certain threshold that you determine. If we were to change the definition of that threshold, we would instantly mm -hmm. change the burden of disease around the US based on this testing. Right. With huge political implications. Imagine. Right, right. We're trying but, to stay away from politics. <laughs> yeah. So 
so I think, you know, it's, it's in, every test has its limitations. And if some tests are very, very sensitive, and then you compare them to a test that's less sensitive, then you say, oh, that test is not as good. But maybe it is good because it's detecting things that are more meaningful for people. Right, but there's a very practical implication also in that the PCR test can take as long as 10 days to come back, which is completely useless. In fact, if you can't really get it in the first 24 to 48 hours, it has limited utility. Correct. But the rapid test comes back in 15 minutes. Correct. To me, the trade-off is no no question. (laughs) That's right. That in itself is a key issue. And if you act on a rapid test, even given the fact that some people have false results, the overall benefit, if you can get rapid tests to be to be rapid uh, compared to PCR, it will be beneficial. I guess what I'm comparing when I'm comparing the molecular test and the rapid test, I'm making the assumption, which is not a real assumption, that all other things being equal, like the time to returning of a result. But as you say, but they aren't. But they're not. That's right. So from a, a deploying a deployment at population level, if you do a test that's not as good, but it gives you a rapid result you're a lot more likely to be able to contain uh, infection than if you have a really super accurate test and it takes too long. It's, it's a classic case of the perfect being the enemy of the good. Right, and it has to still be good. You know, not all the Correct. tests on the market, the market has been flooded with tests that may be garbage. I mean, you really have to make sure it's reliable and it also has to be interpreted by your healthcare provider in context. You need to have a, a good healthcare practitioner, right? Who can put it in context. It's different if you are getting a test on day one after exposure, which you should not do. We should not do it before two days. And even at two days, it's just the earliest you would expect it to be positive. Um, with known exposure versus somebody with symptoms. That's right. With no known exposure. Every context, it has to be taken in context. The misuse of tests is, is a whole separate problem. Correct. So I hope we have a little time to go over vaccine trials, because I know this is something that you're, you're directly involved with. And I, I have to say, as a pediatrician, I've had several parents already crying in my office that their kids are going to be forced to take this vaccine. They're feeling like this imminent mandatory vaccine hovering over them. And even just the, the term Operation Warp Speed is scary. <laughs> yes, it is. I, I, the choice of the name, I don't know who thought of it. I, mean, I, you know, I think it, it, they, that, that was a a marketing mistake or a strategic mistake in communication to call it Operation Warp Speed. Have an operation, we're going to get you a good vaccine as soon as we can, and we're going to make sure to test it really carefully. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It might have been better even. Yeah. Look, I think people are out to be dubious at the moment. Um, we don't yet any have any evidence of, um, of clinical efficacy, of efficacy against actual infection and disease. And the evidence of safety, you know, although it's reassuring, it's extremely limited. You know, it's like you're talking in hundreds of cases of people who've received the vaccines, not, not millions as we have with routine vaccines. Um, my sense of things at the moment is that it's probably going to be unlikely that COVID-19 vaccines are going to be mandatory. Um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to engage communities, to understand hesitancy, to address concerns, especially in communities that are hard hit or have higher mortality. Um, There's also, as we know, the United States is going through very major upheavals relating to, um, you know, um, to societal function and Mm -hmm. to to trust of government and Mm -hmm. intent of government and to questions of social justice, um, whether it's race or ethnicity or or other important issues. Um, And we know vaccinology and COVID-19 isn't happening in the vacuum and we shouldn't be deaf to those concerns and they will affect vaccine uptake very dramatically. Um, and so, uh, you know, delivering the vaccine will pose probably a greater challenge than actually producing a vaccine. I mean, inventing and producing a vaccine that works 
is just the beginning. The, the real challenge is going to be how to deliver it. There's going to be other challenges to delivery. You know, how the, the key recipients of this vaccine will need to probably be healthcare workers in the beginning, the elderly. Healthcare workers is one thing, they come to work, they are used to it, they probably will have reasonable uptake. Um, but the elderly are not routinely vaccinated. Um, mm -hmm. We're trying with flu vaccine to reach them, but there aren't really established, well-established mechanisms for um, for knowing where they live, for accessing them, for recording uh, that they were vaccinated. There's no registries or, or only starting now to be formed for, for sort of a whole of life vaccine schedule of, and schedule for the elderly. So these are going to be very major issues. But, you know, in terms of the parents that you spoke to, children are the last in the queue here. And children have mild disease if they get disease at all. Children probably have less risk of infection in the first place, although it's not absolutely clear. And um, and you know, children will gain less personally and directly from vaccination than will the elderly or people at risk. But a key issue might be to a, vaccines can be used in two ways. They can protect the vaccinated um, person um, from disease outcomes, from bad outcomes, and vaccines at population level reduce transmission. And clearly, if we have the bulk of transmissions occurring in a certain group, even if that's not the group that gets disease, then it might be wise under certain circumstances to vaccinate them also. But, you know, that's true for influenza. Children drive influenza transmission, but it's not true for COVID. At least as far as we know, children are not the major drivers of COVID-19 transmission. Right, right. There's been in the media, there's been so much, you know, hyping of the um, inflammatory syndrome in children. It's terrified parents, but it's rare. It's rare. It's very rare. And, um, you know, uh, th that's correct. It's rare. And um, and we don't really know enough about the, the pathophysiology for it. We're learning a lot about those things. But overall, it's very rare considering, you know, that, that the context in which it's occurring, how many undiagnosed children must be out there mm -hmm. tested that, are, uh, that are, have no symptoms, the burden of COVID-19 in children is likely to be hugely underestimated. And so the denominator is huge and among those very many people children a few have had this event which obviously gets escalated in the media immediately every so we know about every single case it, admittedly it is very frightening but it is very rare so the the, the key question of vaccine deployment for COVID-19 isn't going to be around this inflammatory syndrome it's going to be around you know the standard risk populations right in other words we're, we're not going to push it for children because you have to make sure that the benefit outweighs the risk Correct. So in the, you know, in, the, in the first round of vaccine deployment, we're going to have the healthcare workers, we'll have you know, critical infrastructure people, we're going to have the older adults, hopefully. Um, and then beyond that, um, the countries are going to have to make decisions about who's next. The good thing is that by that stage, we will have um, you know, a lot more safety data and a lot more information. But we're, we're at a point at the moment where we have a number of vaccine candidates that have gone through early phase trials. We know that some of them are immunogenic. We don't know particularly well how long that immunogenicity lasts. Um, we know that they, are, that they cause adverse effects. We know that they're unpleasant to receive, at least some of them, but they, um, so far, the few people in the world that have had them haven't had serious uh, uh, outcomes or adverse events as a result. But safety is absolutely paramount here. It's super important. Um, uh, you know, it's important to make the case, I think, that you know, vaccines are given to healthy people. It's not mm -hmm. coming up with a new cure for cancer and I'm giving it to people who have terminal cancer, lilene, or something like that, and I say, you know what, I'm willing to tolerate a certain degree of risk because I might have a benefit. Here we're giving, um, you know, we have healthy people who may or may never come across COVID um, and 
particularly with um, people who are at low risk of getting adverse events from COVID, I mean, adverse outcomes from COVID, the balance of risk has to clearly be um, very solid. Uh, and as you say, Operation Warp Speed doesn't give that sense. Um, so it will be very important that the, that the um, phase three trials that are now underway will be large and they are going to be large. You know, mm -hmm. 30,000 for each product, 30,000 for Wyeth and Moderna, 30,000 for Pfizer. The Russian vaccine said to you know, also be in that sort of order of magnitude for the phase three trial. So, but even then, you're going to have you know, tens of thousands of people, you know, maybe close to hundreds of thousand people who've received the vaccine. It's still not uh, enough to be absolutely, completely and totally certain mm -hmm. about rare adverse events. And for that, we need well, well you know, strong mechanisms for uh, pharmacovigilance, we call it, surveillance, or post-licensure surveillance. And the public has to be aware that um, you know, it is probably not very likely, but it's certainly possible that some uncommon adverse event will come up and that a vaccine uh, candidate could be withdrawn. And that's happened before several mm -hmm. times. Um, and that, again, is a marker of the system working, not the system not working. Can you just give a little bit about what you alluded to by pharmacovigilance? Because I think that, you know, there are people who are vaccine hesitant who think there's a giant conspiracy between the FDA and the CDC and the, all these different letter organizations. And there are so many overlapping, um, what's the word that I want here, coverage for reassurance. I can't think of the right word. Yeah, so look, I think people are, are right to be hesitant mm -hmm. of government and people are right to be hesitant of vested interests, okay? Mm -hmm. and, and we have to make sure that the, uh, that the systems that are in place to reassure us of safety are transparent, as you said, and mm -hmm. clear, and that people's vested interests are known and that uh, funding lines are clear uh, and so on. As funding that I've previously received is available at my website and so on, anybody can see. Um, but the, the, it is important also, and I, I'm not really addressing myself at kind of people who espouse you know, theories that are um, you know, un, unfounded, I'm addressing most people who you know, mm -hmm. really, right. as, right. as I you know, have real concerns about risk, I mean. Mm -hmm. and, as do I, you know. In fact, I have it more than most because I feel it's my responsibility to be a gatekeeper of risk to some degree. I, you know, I, you know, I, I want to make sure that what we do as a scientific community is, is right, um, and you know, I think that's a, a moral obligation. Right, so, but we have a, we have a number of monitoring agencies, all right, looking for so, the same thing. And as you've said before, these are the vaccines we would be ending up giving our own family. Correct, correct. We're never going to promote something that, to the best of our knowledge, is not safe, and it will take time. That's it's right. So I think the work speed. Yeah, that's right. So look, the mechanisms are there um, to, to determine uh, whether these bad events will occur. It, it would be, I think, a good opportunity to uh, invest even further in pharmacovigilance. Um, we're used to certain pharmacovigilance mechanisms like the Bayer system and other mm -hmm. systems applying to certain populations. Clearly, we need to broaden that. We need to think about inclusion right at the outset of um, people who are not ideal trial candidates, if you like, in phase three clinical trials. We need to include people at high risk. It would be good if we had data on pregnant women. Um, 
you know, given that we're working with elderly populations or, you know, populations who already uh, have comorbidities, have other conditions, you know, one might imagine that somebody gets a vaccine or doesn't get a vaccine and ends up for an unrelated reason in hospital because of their blood, high blood pressure or they get a stroke or, or something else. Um, although, Alainu, you know, a run of pregnancy losses are reported in vaccine recipients, it'll be really important to be able to tell the public, yes, we're monitoring all of these events, no matter how far-fetched they seem, and we're constantly evaluating the possibility that there's an association and we're confident or not confident that there is or there isn't uh, an association. The mechanisms for evaluating that have to be there. Because if right. not, right. then and perceived risk mm -hmm. can do damage as well. Right, and you mentioned the, I'm sorry, you mentioned the VAERS database, that one is always mis, misused by people with vaccine concerns because it's, it's a passive database. Anybody can say, I had a vaccine one week, two weeks, whatever before, and then X happened to me. But we have more, um, we have other agencies that are actually monitoring people after they got their vaccines. And that's well, different. Certainly in, the, certainly in the large phase three studies that will happen. And we also need to really make sure that we have phase four studies. Mm -hmm. The question with the, these things is who, who, who does the phase four studies? Is it government that does it? Is it a responsibility we're going to put on the company? And then that'll raise questions about trust as well. Mm -hmm. Is it academia that's, that, that, do we set aside funding to do that? Um, so that we really follow uh, in these phase four studies, both questions about impact, questions about safety, and questions about real world effectiveness, as opposed to trial-based efficacy. Um, you know, those are the things that we'll need to be already thinking about and setting up uh, in place. And that, that is happening, although I think the thinking hasn't yet fully matured in this area because we're not there yet. In, you know, we're still early in the, despite the rapid progress that's been made, we're still early in vaccine development. So. But certainly once there are vaccines uh, in place and with reassuring results from phase three studies and as countries move towards deployment, then there clearly will need to be a bunch of funding made available to governments, to academic institutions, sometimes to companies, depending on the arrangements, um, to really make sure that we follow up um, individuals in that way. I, I think even beyond the standard that you're, you know, you're, you are right to say that there are you know, standard mechanisms for this, but I think this is new territory. It's the new platforms, the vaccines themselves, and new, new technologies in some, in some cases. Um, they're reaching populations that are more vulnerable than usual. You know, they're not young, healthy kids. And so there's going to have to be a lot of um, scrutiny uh, given to safety going forward. Right, let's going to back check for a second and just define phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four, please. Um, so, um, so studies normally take about 10 or 15 years uh, at least to develop and they start out with sort of um, often with um, you know, basic bench science, laboratory science and then move to animal studies and then once all of that happens and there's suggestion that they work and that they're safe and that the dosing has been more or less uh, uh, found given in the animal model then we usually go into a phase one which is a first in human uh, trial with a few participants where we try to get the dose right, where we make sure that there's no adverse effects, where we look to see um, whether, the, uh, the, whether the doses that we've given have produced an immune response. The phase two is similar. It's as immunogenicity and safety, safety immunogenicity studies with um, you know, more people involved. So we have uh, you know, slightly um, larger effects. There may be other secondary questions like the regimen, like is it given at what, what, how many doses at what time. Um, again, looking at safety and looking at whether there's an immune response. And then the key phase is the phase three, which is looking to see whether the vaccine works against disease outcomes. 
Um, and that usually requires several thousand people, but in cases where there's a safety issue or, or subgroups to be considered or something like that, it can be in the tens of thousands, as is going to be with COVID. Mm -hmm. And then usually licensure occurs on the basis of demonstrating efficacy against the outcomes, the clinical outcomes, and safety at the level of several tens of thousands of people. That's usually when licensure occurs. And then a vaccine is brought to, to market, is brought to deployment. And then after that, we continue to, to have ongoing monitoring and surveillance to look at overall impact of disease transmission in the community. We look at um, whether and what, what the real protection is at individual level in broader groups of people, not just ones that were in trials. Um, and we also look at safety in an ongoing way. And that's the critical time when for safety particularly, we have large, large numbers and, uh, and, and we maintain monitoring for a large number of cases. And as I mentioned before, there have very rarely, but still been cases where vaccines have been withdrawn uh, at phase four because of safety concerns. So they're the, they're the kind of uh, phases. Right, so phase four will be after it's out on the market and we're still going to monitor it, not just by the VAERS, which we said before is just anybody can report anything, although that has value. What were some of the names of the other databases? So the key issue here is that there aren't really established databases for the elderly. There aren't really established databases. There are developing databases of pregnant women and certainly all companies keep record of all pregnant women. Um, my understanding, and I could be wrong, is that at the moment the phase three trials are not actively going to be recruiting pregnant women yet, but certainly there will be some among them, in the tens of thousands of people who may be pregnant or become pregnant soon after enrollment and data on them will be kept, but clearly um, those mechanisms need to be established. So I think, I guess what I'm saying, uh, Elisa, is that yes, I think people can trust that there are systems out there, but I think the role of safety should never stop to be advocated, and in right. this, in this in this regard, I'm aligning with people who may be considering themselves vaccine hesitant. I mean, mm -hmm. this is about vaccines and all my life is about making them available and, um, you know, and advocating for their use. But, you know, we are talking about new vaccines for a new indication for a new disease. Um, and we, there's a lot of unknown. And I think it, that think very carefully, as we always do, about what specific um, safety uh, networks need to be established and supported or expanded. And particularly also in low-income settings where those things are often not as available as they are in the U.S. We're lucky in the U.S. that we have that information. Right. We also did get a question about um, differences in racial and ethnic um, disparities in healthcare, which um, for that person, they can email us. And anybody else who has questions that weren't answered or still has questions at joma at, let me get this right, health at joma.org, H-E-A-L-T-H at joma, J-O-W-M-A dot O-R-G. You can also reach us on Instagram um, with questions. And I have to thank you so, so much, Dr. Barzev. This has been so informative and I can't tell you how much I and I'm sure our listeners appreciate your, your honesty, your humility, your transparency, everything. Thank you so much. No worries, a pleasure. Thanks, good to talk thank to you. Thank you, be well. Bye, bye. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.